Right, good morning once again. Um, we're going to look at this morning raising godly children in an ungodly world. Now, I can see some of you have probably already raised children. Some of you might be thinking of one day raising children, and they're probably here, those who are raising children. But don't worry, hopefully um, we can take principles um, through through what's said throughout to, to whether it's grandchildren, um, those that we know who live next door to us who can be praying for, people, how the young children are raised today. I want to start with a brief word um, from Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 22 said this, a good man leaves an inheritance or a legacy to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. You know, everyone here, every one of us in the world, whether we have children or not, will leave a legacy. But what kind of legacy will we leave to children? That's what I want us to think about this morning. What legacy will we leave our children, because we all will leave a legacy one way or the other. It'll either be a good legacy or a bad legacy. But what kind of legacy will we leave our children? Does anyone know? You might be able to see that too well. But whose grave that is? You see, is it not clear enough? Anyone ever been to Bunhill Fields in London? Do you know who it is? John Bunyan. Yeah. It's the, if you've ever heard of John Bunyan, a famous um, Christian who wrote, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, right? John Bunyan left a legacy, not only to his generation, um, but to our generation, because it's a great book, um, an allegory, really, of the Christian faith. And what people may not realize, actually, it's second only to the Bible in, in, in best-selling books, even today. You know, if your kids love the, the Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis books, they will love Pilgrim's Progress. But John Bunyan has indeed left a legacy. But what you may not know about John Bunyan, John Bunyan wrote that book really while he was in prison. He spent a lot of his life in prison because he was persecuted for preaching the gospel. But how many people have ever heard people who persecuted John Bunyan? Can you name people who persecuted John Bunyan? Do you know those people? No, but we know who John Bunyan is because the psalmist says, for the righteous will never be moved, but he will be remembered forever. You know, we remember John Bunyan today, even hundreds of years after his existence, because he left a legacy to us, a spiritual legacy to the church. And that's what we need to think about when it comes to our children, that that we will leave them a legacy, and the legacy that they leave behind will be remembered forever. But let's think about actually the the clash that's really going on in our culture today, because we need to understand this in regards to the family. There's a clash going on between God's word and man's word, which really emphasizes itself in the biblical worldview versus the secular worldview. And you see this almost on a daily basis. How many people saw in the news this week of the lady who, who, who married herself in Italy? Did you see that? She a lady in Italy decided that she, she, she didn't want anything to do with men, but she wanted marriage, and she therefore decided to, to marry herself. You know, we think, you know, we think that's strange. We laugh at it. Yes, but that's, that's the reality. I mean, she was deadly serious. Read the, the, the article on the BBC, and she was absolutely serious. I want to do this. And she had hundreds of friends there for celebration. You know, earlier this week, there's, there was a, a, a pastor who'd come out in, in the States, um, who was once part of a conservative Bible-believing church, who now teaches that polyamorous relationships are okay and they should be the future of the church. 
And he's saying we now need to reject what the Bible's always taught, that marriage is between one man and one woman, that polyamorous relationships are the future of love. Now, who would have ever have thought that? But these are the issues that we are now dealing with because we see the clash of these two worldviews in our culture. You know, we had a phone call. Neil was on the phone um, this week um, to one of our clients who does a lot of our um, paper, print work. And he was telling us that someone had called him up, sort of the transgender movement, and wanted uh, um, some leaflets printed up um, promoting their work. And he said, sorry, I can't do it. And he had to write back to them saying, look, I can't do this. I'm a Christian publisher. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and what the Bible says about gender. And he now fears that there'll be repercussions because of that, because he took a stand on his faith. We need to realize because there's a clash of worldviews in our culture today. We need to understand that within the church, that the Christian biblical worldview is up against man's word, which is basically the secular worldview. And the secularists have done something very clever. They've really separated the heart from the mind. You know, the secular worldview does not encourage deep, critical thought you know i'm not trying to say therefore there is no there aren't clever people in secular culture but they don't really the secular worldview does not allow for for critical thought self-reflection and it often confuses emotion with truth and feelings with logic when you see these debates on tv over marriage and you know we think about this woman who, who married herself in italy or the pastor in america who's now teaching polyamorous relationship it's because they've separated the heart from the mind, when the Bible actually brings them together, right? Jesus said, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, we to connect them in the biblical worldview, but the secular worldview separates them from each other. And that's why you see, when it comes to things like homosexuality, transgender issues, it gets so emotional because people think this way. We need to realize that when it comes to these issues. Now, so when it comes to raising our children, the Bible actually should be the foundation. You know, lots of Christians, when they raise their children, I've found this, that they don't go to the Bible for how they should read or raise their children. They're listening to Dr. Phil or Oprah or, or someone else for information about how they should raise their children. But the Bible gives us principles, no matter what circumstances we're in, about how we should raise our children in this world, I want you to think about these verses in Matthew 19 because you might think, what does this have to do with children? But Jesus is teaching about the doctrine of the family when he's up against the Pharisees in Matthew 19. And he says this, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two should become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. You know, lots of people in the church today say Jesus never spoke on the issue of homosexuality. We disagree. He did. Of course he did. But this has to do with the doctrine of the family because the family is founded on the doctrine of creation in Genesis. The family is the first and most fundamental of all human institutions that God ordained in Scripture. He made the family first. It's primary importance. Once you get rid of the family unit in any culture, you watch that culture fall apart. If you look in history, once you get rid of that family unit that God has ordained, 
and that nation will crumble. And we see the tragic consequences of that today. We haven't been just getting rid of the family since the year 2000. It's been going on for, for, for many years. You know, one of the men who's helped do that passed away this week, Hugh Hefner. Think about the legacy he left behind. What a tragic legacy he left behind. But we've been seeing this. We're now reaping the consequences that worldview, the sexual revolution in the 1950s. But we need to realize that it's not just the doctrine of creation. All our doctrine, either directly or indirectly, is founded on the book of Genesis, and the family comes from that foundation. I want to introduce you to, to my family. There's my um, five children. In, in January, there'll be two more in, in, in another picture in the future. Um, we're having our sixth and seventh child in, in January. We've been blessed now twice with twins. Um, so that'll be seven children. Um, our oldest is seven tomorrow, just if you want to know, if you want to do the maths. Anyway, we love kids, by the way. It's, uh, they weren't an accident. We do love our kids. But when we got married, our wife, my wife and I, when we sat down to think about our family and how we'd raise our children, how we would school them, had to sit down long and hard and think through how are we going to do this? What principles are we going to use to raise our children in this world? We needed to go to the Bible for those principles. We needed to realize that Scripture had to be our foundation. We raise our children in this world because we realize what kind of world we were living in. But think about this. According to the Bible, what is the primary importance? According to the Bible, what is the primary importance of marriage? Well, think about this verse in Malachi 2.15 when it's in the context of the Israelites seeking to divorce he said this, God said, but he did not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. That is the purpose for having children. That's the purpose for marriage, that you would seek to have godly offspring, that you would seek to raise your children in such a world that, that they go out and influence the world for Jesus Christ. But that is one of the primary importance of, of, the, of, of having children, that we would seek to have godly offspring who are going to influence the world for Jesus Christ. You know, but there's problems in the church today when it comes to, to raising our children, to giving them spiritual um, information. Think about this question. According to the Bible, not our opinions, according to the Bible, who is meant to be the spiritual head? According to the Bible. The husband, right? Time after time, the Bible says this, the living, the living Thanks you. As I do this day, the Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Now think about what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, instruction of the Lord. That's not to say, by the way, that mothers don't have any role. But when you think about it, in, in, in homes today, in Christian homes today, the, the, the person who will lead their children in devotion times and reading the Bible and praying with their children will if you ask families today, it will be the mother. Because many fathers have abandoned their God-given authority to be the priest, not only to the children, but to their wife as well. We see the consequences within the family. Again, that's not to say wives don't have a role within the family unit. They do. But God has given fathers that role of leading their family spiritually. You know, many men are away these days working too many long hours or they're sitting playing the PlayStation, rather than teaching their children how to live before the Lord. The Bible tells us, fathers, 
bring their children up. So ask yourself this question, if you're a father with children this morning, are you doing that? Are you taking up that God-given responsibility that you have from the Lord to raise your children in God's ways? You know, think about what Thomas Watson, another famous Puritan, said about this verse. He gave three great bits of advice. He said this, one, a father must drop holy instructions into his children. Children are young plants which must be watered with good education so that may, they may fear the Lord. You know, he uses the image of a plant because just as you get the young plant, you have to water, you have to tender it, you have to take care of it. So that's the same with your child. You have to take care of that child God has given you from a young age. You want it to grow healthy and strong in the Lord, then you have to feed it from the time your children are young. You know, every morning when when before I go off to work, we sit with the children, we try when this is not easy to do every day, we realize there's difficulties every day, but we make sure we at least have ten minutes before I go out the door when we sit with the children, we'll read scripture with them. We do what we call a catechism with them, we catechize them in the Christian faith. You know, we even try and do it before we go to bed at night. We make sure that before I go off to start my day, that I spend time with my children, teaching them the things of the Lord. Because I realize the rest of the day is busy. Sometimes when I get back from work, I don't have that time. It's vital that we spend time with our children in the Word, training them, pouring that water of the Word on them so that we'll be able to grow later on in life. He gives this second bit of advice. A parent must pray for his children. The soul of your child is a trap, and you will not pray that it may escape from the devil's trap. You know, think about how much time you spend praying for your children. How much time, fathers and mothers, do you pray for your children? You know, I realize the difficulty of that sometimes when you forget to pray for your children. And it's a constant reminder that each and every day we need to be praying for our children, for their spiritual growth, for the difficulties and temptations that they will face each and every day. But how much time, parents, grandparents, you know, uncles, aunties here today, do you pray for those young people that are in your life, for the young people that are in your church? Scripture calls us to pray for our children. He gives us a third bit of advice. A parent must give his children discipline. He quotes Proverbs 23, do not spare the rod. David pampered Adonijah, and afterwards he was a grief of heart to his father and wanted to put him off the field. You know, he gives that spiritual example. You know, we mustn't confuse discipline, by the way, with abuse. Discipline is loving correction. It's not beating the child again in the world. They won't allow that. But we're not talking about abusing our children. We're talking about discipline. And there's a time for loving correction. You know, Watson gives the example of David and his relationship with one of his sons, Adonijah, because he pampered him. He didn't treat him properly as a son and discipline him. And later on in his life, he regretted that. You know, a number of years ago, you remember the, there was riots in London. Uh, police had, had shot a young man, and, and, and the young people of London decided to take to the streets and riot. It was interesting. I was watching it on the news one evening. I think it was on the BBC, and one of the reporters grabbed a bunch of young children, a, a group of teenagers, and, one, and they, they were t- talking to one of the teenagers, and he said, you know, why are you doing this? Concerned about everyone's safety and everything. And, and the young man just looked at the camera and said, well, I know I can get away with it. I won't face any consequences. See, if you don't discipline your children, and if we don't discipline our children in general, then they realize, well, I, I can do what I want. 
There are no consequences. And that's the sort of world we live in today. We wonder why we see all these troubled young people today, because they think they can get away with anything and there won't be any consequences. We must train, discipline children. Again, that's not to say we're abusive to them, but we give them the loving correction that comes when they rebel. You know, I'm thankful that my father and even my grandfather at times disciplined me because I was a terrible young person. But I'm thankful for that. I don't look back and think, oh, wow, you know, that was abusive. I'm thankful that it put me on a straight road. You know, the Bible does talk about training children. You know, think about Moses' words to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. He says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them how? Diligently. In other words, it's going to be hard work. It's not easy. Moses recognized that, but that's how you should teach them. It's going to be diligent. You're going to have to be diligent in how you bring and raise up your children. And he goes on to say, um, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You know, that's not to say that you're doing that 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, but each and every opportunity of the day when you have time to teach your children about the things of the Lord, it's, it's an opportunity, right? You know, we, when we bought our house um, a few years ago, we in, inherited a, a massive fish tank, um, a tropical fish tank that the previous owners had left. So we said, oh, we'll take care of the fish. There's a number of big fish in there. And one day, one of them died. And the kids saw it and they were grief-stricken that this, this precious fish had died. It was an opportunity to teach my children what death is in the world. You know, a number of them have seen the, the, the terror attacks recently or the last few months that we've seen across the world. And they ask, Daddy, why do people do that? And it's an opportunity to teach your children what's wrong with the world that we live in. You know, it's using moments like that to train your children so they'll understand the world around you. That's what Moses is talking about, that you sit and you talk with them. You teach them these things from God's word and help them to understand the world that they're living in. But there are consequences again when you don't do this. You know, think of Israel's history when they go into the promised land. Joshua um, 4, um, verse 5, and it says this, And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulders according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. And he says in verses 21 to 24, And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask the fathers in the times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan dry ground. And he goes on to say, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Why did he get the people of Israel to take up 12 stones? So it would be remembrance of what God had done for them, bringing them out of bondage to sin in Egypt, right? So that they wouldn't forget what the Lord had done for them in history, and so that other people in the world would know what God had done, would know of this great God who saves people from their sin. You know, it's a reminder, because why is he giving them a reminder? Because if you read the, the history of the children of Israel, and even our own history, once you forget what God has done for you, then you don't remember God anymore, right? That's what happened to Israel, because think about what happens in the book of Judges. It says this, all the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua 
and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And then it says this, And then there arose another generation after that who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You know, in one generation, they'd lost that knowledge of what God had done for them because they'd failed to pass on that knowledge. Now, if you read Psalm 78, it's a long psalm, but it's a great psalm, a commentary on the people of the history of the people of Israel. And it gives you an idea why they forgot that, because the fathers didn't take up their God-given role and pass on that information to their children. There's, again, there's a, there's a point to fathers to remember to tell your children what God has done for us in the history of the world. You know, many people come to us and say, well, you know, why do you keep going on about creation? Don't you get sick of talking about creation? Is that all you ever talk about? Well, think about it. We're told to remind people of these things. You know, when it comes to Christmas, I say to them, well, do you get sick of that same old Christmas story each and every year? Easter, you must be sick of hearing about the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Shouldn't we change those things? You know, why do we remember those things each and every year? When we come to the Lord's Supper, Paul tells us in Corinthians, right, remember what the Lord has done for you. Why? Because we're a forgetful people. We're a forgetful people, right? Amen. We forget, which is why we need constant reminders of what God has done for us in history, which is why we need to tell our children of what the Lord has done for us in history so that they won't forget it when they grow up. But think about this. We need the Bible to be an authority in the area of what it talks about human nature. Because if you ask the average person, and I even dare say the average person in the church today, are people generally good or bad? What, what do you think you'll hear? They're generally good. What does the Bible say? There's no one good, no, not one. We're a sinful, fallen human race, which is why Jesus came into the world. You know, I never had to teach any of my children how to do that, Right? I think those people who deny original sin and I think were basically good have never had children. I never had to teach my children to lie, steal, cheat. None of those things. It comes natural to them because they're fallen sons and daughters of Adam. But I want you to think about what the late um, Julian Huxley said. And he was a rabid um, atheist, evolutionist. In fact, he's the grandson of Thomas Huxley, who's Darwin's best friend. He said this about education. Education must be concerned with man's place and role in nature and its raw material as man himself. A lot of cargo will have to be jettisoned. He's talking about from the Christian model of education. Man was not created in his present form a few thousand years ago. Man is not descended from Adam and Eve. Children are not born with a load of original sin derived from the fall. There are no absolutes of truth or virtue, only possibilities of greater knowledge and fuller perfection. You know, Huxley realized what Christianity taught, and he realized once upon a time our, our education system was greatly influenced by Christian thinking. It isn't today, by the way, because of people like Huxley. But Huxley knew what you had to get rid of if you were going to pose evolutionary humanistic thinking on the next generation. You have to get rid of this idea that the earth is only a few thousand years. By the way, he's a man who gets it, right? He gets it. Many pastors were thankful that Barry does get this issue. 
but many pastors don't. He gets it. This is what you have to get rid of. Earth is a few thousand years old. Mankind is not descended from Adam and Eve. Children are not born with a load of original sin. He says you get rid of that and you'll create basically a generation of people who will not know God, who will not know about Christianity. And you'll make humanists of them. By the way, we'll come to that a bit later. But Psalm 51, 5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother deceived me. Deceived in sin. You know, you think about this example, that the bad will influence the good more than that good will influence the bad. You know, think about when your children are at school and they're learning all those things. Are they more likely to influence the rest of the school children or the rest of the school children more likely, given their sinful nature, to influence them? You think about the example of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, when Lot was first with Abraham and he decided to go his own way because he wanted that the land that looked pleasing to the eye, right? He separated from a person he never should have separated. He went his own way. When you read the narrative of Genesis, it tells you, first of all, he was outside Sodom. When you turn the page, where is he? He's in Sodom, right? He's in Sodom. Because did he influence Sodom more than they influenced him? Sorry, it didn't work that way. Sodom influenced Lot. You know, we need to realize because we're born in sin, we're easily contaminated by the things of the world. When it comes to TV, evolution, humanism, liberal theology... Because of our fallen nature, we soak those things in easily. And from childhood, you know, your education shapes your entire worldview. That's why it's so important that we educate our children rightly. Because your education shapes your entire worldview. It will build you for the rest of your life. But think about actually what the word educate means. Because if you look at a dictionary definition of what it means to educate it actually means to lead out now ask the question what are you leading people out of well when they thought about this word education it was leading people out of the darkness this fallen world into the light of the gospel you know when you're educating children these days is that what you're doing when you educate them that's not how the school system sees it but as christian parents as grandparents as those concerned for the younger generation, are you leading them out of a fallen world into the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because that's what education classically is all about. You know, another great Puritan, John Milton, said this. He said this, The end then of learning is to repair the ruin of our first parents and by regaining to know God aright and out of that knowledge to love him, to imitate him, to be like See the difference between Huxley's version of education and a mind that is set on the word of God for education? That's what education is all about. And that's how we should be seeking to lead our children, to repair the ruin of sin so that they can come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we need to regain the concept of the fall back into our churches because many churches, because they've abandoned Genesis 1 to 3, they've had to give up the doctrine of the fall. The doctrine of the fall is founded upon that history in Genesis being true. Barry already quoted this verse this morning, but Romans talks about the renewal of your mind. Why do you need to renew your mind? Because it's fallen, right? It's been affected by sin. That's why you need to spend time in Scripture, in prayer. 
come into church, spending time with each other. You need to renew your mind because of the fallenness of it. Which is why we need to be pouring the salt, the biblical truth, into the lives of our children and our younger generation. We need to be teaching them creation, Christian apologetics, filling them with things of God's world so that when they grow up, they can be throwing that salt out to other Christians, to non-Christians. That's why you train them from an early age in the things of the Lord when it comes to, even when it comes to, you know, this morning at Sunday school and, and youth groups around the world, that salt into them so that when they grow up, they can throw it out to others. You're not just trying to fill their head full of knowledge. That's not what training and discipline is about. And that's why you do it with the Word, so that they can grow up and, and give other people that information. But think about what the prophet Jeremiah said to the people of his days. He said, learn not the way of the nations. You know, sadly in the church today, we learn the way of the nations far more easily than we do in the Word of God. And we see the consequences of that because we're so influenced by, you know, evolution, television, the Internet, the books magazines that we see around us all the time. You know, they influence the church far more today, I believe, than the Word of God because we're so accustomed to sitting in front of the television on our laptops, on our mobile phones, because you can get it so readily now on your mobile phones, the books, the magazines. They're all secular in content, and they're informing that next generation of children. You know, that's why when you think about this image, we see a generation of younger people mock the idea of God because they've been trained by other people, right? They've been trained in humanistic thinking. You know, we I don't know what you're presuming from what Barry said this morning. You've got a good relationship with the school, right? But we need to remember that the schools are not neutral up and down the country in the things that they teach. Basically, they have, have adopted, as Huxley said, this system of humanism. So you need to realize when you send your children to these schools... They're learning, they really are learning another religion. They're learning the religion of humanism, which is basically the religion of atheism, which is why you see this. Because even statistics today um, will say things like this. 60% of young people between 18 and 24-year-olds and 53% of 25 to 39-year-olds would say they have no religion. Why? Why do they say that? Well, just think back to the previous slide, because they've been trained they have no religion, right? That's why they say they have no religion, because they've been trained to think like that. By the way, biblically, of course, they have a religion because they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, right? They do have a religion, and they, they need to know that. Everyone has a religion. Everyone worships something, and their lives are devoted to things. It's what you worship and serve. You know, there was an interest in article in The Independent, not last week, but the week before, which was entitled, How Better Education Has Built a More Secular Britain. And I think the author was right in what he was saying. And he was, this comment here, he's saying this in the context of Christian schools. Listen to what he says. He says, it seems to me that with better education, the teaching of critical thinking, I, I would disagree with him on that point. I don't think they do teach critical thinking in schools. And improvements in general scientific knowledge, by the way, in the context of what he's saying here, he doesn't mean science, he means evolution, which is Darwin's example, by the way. And understanding the faith school system that religions operate under is failing to convince young people to adopt their beliefs. Now, what's he saying here? Because a lot of people think 
well, I'll just pour um, the gospel on people from the top down. But you can't change a belief system from the top down. You have to change it from the foundation upwards. You know, a lot of these um, faith schools think because they can just do devotions in the morning and pour some Christian content somewhere throughout the afternoon or something, that will help their children. He's saying, actually, it's not. Because in the curriculum they're using, it's basically humanistic because they just adopt secular textbooks into their thinking. And it trains their children to think about the world from a secular point of view. So unless you're training them with a biblical framework, then they're going to come out that other end thinking there is no God. I don't have a religion. You know, we need to contrast the biblical worldview with a secular worldview when it comes to the issue of origins. Obviously, we believe in special creation, where there's a secular worldview is teaching evolutionary naturalism. The truth, when it comes to truth, we believe because God has revealed himself perfectly in Scripture as a moral lawgiver, we believe in objective truth. But when you go to, to, to schools today or universities, truth is subjective. I've heard many university lectures say, well, when it comes to Hitler and the Second World War, now, personally, I disagree with what Hitler did, but I can't really say that he was wrong in what he did because they don't believe in moral absolutes, and therefore they realize that if they're going to be consistent in their thinking, they really can't condemn Hitler for what he did. But I imagine all this morning would want to say 100% Hitler was wrong in what he did. But you need to realize, because of his worldview, that's why people can say that. They don't believe in objective truth. Ethics, again, for us, for Christians, they're objective and universal, but for, for secular thinkers, it's situational, based upon the situation you're in for that moment in time. You know, we've got a book on the table there, Ready to Return, and it interviewed the younger generation on certain questions such as this. Do you consider yourself born again and or questioning 20 to 29-year-olds, asking them these questions to see whether they're in their thinking because they would have come out um, of these institutions. And these are, these are children, by the way, young people I know to church. 70, sorry, 50, um, roughly 55% said yes. Do you consider yourself born again? These were all people who said they were Christians, by the way. The rest said no or don't know. What did Jesus say? In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. It should be 100% yes. Do you believe um, if you're a good person, you will go to heaven? Look what it said. Well into the 60s, because the culture teaches basically, yeah, we're all good, we're all good people. Therefore, you know, you ever hear that question, why would God send people to hell? That's why they ask those questions. You know, should gay couples be allowed to marry? Look how many people said yes. Again, because they've been trained by the culture how to think about these issues. That's why there's so much disagreement among younger people, contention when it comes to these issues. In fact, when we go up and down the country almost on a weekly basis and go into churches, you know what generation of people is missing? The younger generation. Because they're the generation that say, we have no religion. This is why you don't find them in church Sunday morning, which is why we, this is in Genesis, want to say to the church today, we need to be training churches, our young people today, in what we call the seven seas of history. 
so it'll give them a right understanding in their fa- foundationally in their thinking so they can think correctly about the world in which they live. You know, you think about those seven seas. The first one, creation, the fact that God created the world, he created it very good, there was no sin and death in it. Corruption, the fact that Adam's disobedience led to sin and death coming into the world. You know, catastrophe, that in the days of Noah, there was a global flood. You know, when you teach about the flood, you connect it to the rock layers. You know, many Christians say, well, I believe in the global flood. That's great. But then do you train and teach that generation of how they can connect that to the issue of geology? Because when they go to the the secular schools and universities and switch on the TV and media, they'll say, no, it wasn't from a flood. It just happened slowly over millions of years. You need to be training them how to think about these issues, confusion, how Babel relates to different people groups. Because... What Christians would say are the important ones, Christ's cross and consummation, which are vitally important, we need to realize those last three founded on those first four. And it's the first four that have been attacked by the world today, which is why we see that generation of children missing within the church. We need to re-educate people through those seven seas of history because they've been evolutionized within the culture, because... You know, think about it. The moment you, these children are born in that culture, they're going to be evolutionized from the moment they're born, which is why you have to take them through what we call the seven seas of history so they can come out trusting and believing that God's word is true, that it has real history in it, that it's not just mythology, because that will take them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which will show them their need for the Savior so important that we do that with our children today. You know, we started with this, we'll end with it. Proverbs thirteen twenty two: A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. You know, as you go from here this morning, I want you to go with that thought in mind. What legacy are you going to leave your children, your grandchildren, those young people that you have involved with in your life? What legacy will you leave them? Because we will all leave a legacy. Will it be a good spiritual legacy or will it be a non-existent spiritual legacy? Because we want our children to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We want them to trust in that gospel so that they will be saved. You know, let me just tell you of a few resources that you might find helpful. Of course, there's this great book, Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, repent. And read it. It's a must-read. It's a brilliant read. If you, like I said, if your kids love um, C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, they'll love Pilgrim's Progress because it's it's basically on the same level. Well, there's our book, Raising Godly Children in an Ungodly World, which is on the table here. There's even um, a DVD of it if you prefer a DVD. Um, one of our speakers at our mega conference, Dr. Vody Borkham, has written several books for the family, but this is a great one: Family Shepherds, Dads. If you're here this morning. Let me encourage you to get this book. You're wondering, how can I lead my family? Um, this is a great guide to do that. Dr. Vody Borkham, Family Shepherds. If you're interested in any other materials, um, our DVDs are on, well, most of our DVDs are on for a two for a ten deal. And if you're looking for a, a family magazine um, for you as a family to sit down and read, then we've got our Answers magazine, a great magazine for the whole family, not just for the parents, but for the whole family to train them in the Christian worldview that i'm going to hand back over to barry um we finish him with a final song okay
Okay, thank you, Simon. Uh, it's um, it is such an important message. Let's just uh, end in, in by bowing our hearts and praying, shall we? Well, Father, we just thank you for the things that Simon has shared with us this morning. Impress them upon our hearts. We pray, uh, Father. We just uh, pray for every this morning, Lord, every grandparent, that Father, you would help us to really think about that legacy, Lord. We look at the signs of the times. We believe that you're coming very soon. But, Father, it may be, Lord, if you tarry, that these children out in Sunday school, Lord, at the moment will grow up and they will need to pass on these truths to their children. And, uh, Lord, maybe even their children's children, Lord, if you tarry. So, Father, we just pray. Give us that hunger and desire to equip and train these young people. Lord, help us to be sure of your own word ourselves. And, Lord, if we have questions, Lord, may we get them settled. So that, Father, we can be witnesses, that we can be light and salt in this world, we pray. So, Father, we just thank you for this morning. Lord, again, just impress it upon our hearts as we go from here. Uh, and bless us now as we spend some time together just fellowshipping together. We just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.